All right, how we doing? Doing good? Good, man. You look good. You sound good. It's going to be a good day. Speaking of good, we are finishing out Romans chapter 8 today, and so we're going to look at verses 31 through 39. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And then once we finish out Romans chapter 8 this week, we're going to take a break from Romans for four weeks and do a four-week parenting series because this is the time of year, it's either dread it or you love it, that our kids go back to school, and so that's going to be this week. We're looking forward to that, uh, even though that means summer's over, but it's all about seasons, all right? For new beginning, there's an ending, ending, there's a beginning, every rose has its thorn, whatever. You know what I'm saying, all right? So we're going to do a four-week series on parenting. It's going to be fantastic, and then in September, we'll jump back into Romans chapter 9, all right? And so speaking of parenting, you may have noticed I'm up here in a walking boot, uh, in, in kind of in preparation of this parenting series this last week, I decided to put my foot down, and when I did, I got it injured. And uh, that was a lame dad joke for some of you. You'll get it later, all right? But no, seriously, this is an ankle I broke a couple years ago and uh, just kind of stressing it out over the last few weeks. And so doctor said I got to be back in the walking boots. Something called old age and overweight. I don't know anything about that. Uh, but it's going to be good. We're still going to have a good message because uh, I learned in middle school, speaking of school, I learned in middle school when my coach asked me when I was playing football when I got uh, hurt. And he said, are you hurt or are you injured? And I'm like, coach, I'm in seventh grade. I don't understand these complex questions. And um, hurt, you can keep playing injured. You got to sit out. I'm like, I'm hurt, coach. And so I kept on playing. So I'm hurt today. I'm not injured, but I can preach even with a boot on. All right. So Romans chapter eight, we're going to start in verse 31. We'll finish out chapter eight. But as always, before we jump in, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. All right. Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for who you are. Uh, thank you for being a good father. And um, your love is so reckless. And we thank you for that. In fact, that's what we're going to look at today, God. As we wrap up Romans chapter 8, God, would you help us to understand just how much you love us? And that love is so amazing. It is an amazing grace that we have. Because, God, there may be people listening or here today, God, that don't know this. And so if they don't, would you open up their eyes to see the truth in it, God, to love it? And then for those of us who do know it, would you encourage us with these words today? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So coming off the hills of last week, if you weren't here, we, we just talked about two verses last week, verses 30, uh, 29 and 30, what's called the golden chain. And in response to that, Paul now is going to ask seven different questions and these questions aren't there because Paul doesn't know the answer. The questions are there. It's just like anytime God asks us the question, it's not that he doesn't know, but it's for our benefit. And so in response to 29 and 30, Paul is now going to turn his attention to like, if that's true, then that's so amazing. And this is why I think it's so important for us to study doctrine. Again, if you weren't here last week, if you've ever had questions about predestination and all that stuff, go watch the message last weekend because Paul's response to those doctrines isn't confusion. It isn't like consternation. Like, how can that be? Paul's response to those doctrines is like a worship service. He is amazed that this God has done this thing to save us. And so what we're going to see today is his response to that. And he's going to do that in some forms of questions to help us understand how great this love is that God has for us. Let's go verse 31 and 32. He says, what then shall we say to these things? First question. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So his first question is, what do we say to respond in response to these things? 
Again, I told you, a lot of people are confused or, or a lot of people, honestly, in, in Christian circles especially, don't like the doctrines of 29 and 30. But Paul's response to this is, what shall we say to this, is not to think, oh man, that kind of stinks. Is no, if that's true, if God is for us, and God has done this. He foreloved us. He predetermined our destination to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So he called us. He justified us. He glorified us. If God has done that, what can anybody else do to us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that statement of if God is for is not a question of condition like, oh, I hope he is. No, it's better read to say since God is for us. Now, if you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that I like to capitalize on words that are so often overlooked. And even, and I say this often in my Bible study software, Logos, it, it doesn't highlight the word therefore. It doesn't highlight normally the prepositions, all those poor prepositions, all right? But I just feel like these are the biggest words, even though the, a lot of times they're the smallest words, because they help us understand the other big words around it. Because we can talk all day about God, but if we don't have the word for there, then it doesn't mean anything. And this word here, for, is a preposition, and it's a preposition of advantage. It's a preposition of advantage. And here's what that means. It means this. It is, means for the sake of, I like this one, or a marker of benefaction. Of benefaction. Now, that's a word we don't use as much today, but it's made up of two Latin words, bene, which means good or well, and faction, which means to do something. And so benefaction is when somebody does something good for you. We use the word benefactor. A benefactor is a person who does good for you. If you want to know what, teenagers, if you want to know what benefactors are, just look at mom and dad, all right? They are the very first benefactors in your life. They are doing something good for you. They are factoring in, in a, in a way to produce something good. Now, if you just look up that word factor in English, I love this English definition of this. Listen to this. It's an element contributing to a particular result. An element contributing to a particular result. And what is that result? It's bene, it's good so here's how Paul's arguing. If God is for you, he is your benefactor and he is contributing for a specific result. And that result is to save you. And if he's doing that, you have the greatest advantage in the world. If God is your benefactor, if God is your advantage, you can't lose because he's God. Now let's talk about this God for a second. This is the God who created everything. Again, we've been having all these conversations as human beings about how the world got into existence, which always kind of amazes me. It's like, we don't know, we weren't there, so I'm gonna postulate about it. And like, I'm gonna look at this, look at that, look at that. But we always take God out of the equation. But the Bible very clearly says that God spoke and the world came into existence. The world came into being. And one of the arguments against that is people say, well, there's, there's so much out there. There's so many universes and galaxies. And, and here we are as this little privileged blue planet. And why in the world would God create all that other stuff and just have life on this one planet? And my response to that always is, it's not like it was hard for him. He just said, let it be. Like he didn't even break a sweat. 
He didn't even lift a finger. He just said, be, and it was. But you want to know why, and I say this often, why I think all that is out there. It's not because there's extra life out there, all right? It is because God is saying in a very physical form, look at how big that is and how small you are. This is how big I am, and this is how small you are. So I, I, I literally think God created all of that that we can't even see and understand and know to prove a point to us is I'm big and you're small. But here's Paul's argument. If that's true, that God is for you. You have the greatest advantage any human being can have. So I say often, and I used to say often when I was in daycare, because I went to daycare at six weeks old. I would always tell people, my dad can beat up your dad. Because it was true. He was just big. And I love that. I love the fact that my dad was big and bad. And I was safe wherever he went. I mean, again, I've seen him knock my horse unconscious. We would go hunting and we'd be in the woods. As long as I was with him, I was safe. Why? Not because there wasn't a big bad world out there, because, but I had a big bad dad walking with me. And I always thought, if my dad's for me, I don't care y'all jokers against me. My dad is the greatest advantage I have. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, man, if God did this, he foreloved you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, he glorified you, and he's God, who else can do anything to you? And this is why it's so important to understand rightly the doctrine of God. Because a lot of us are influenced, like we talked about last week, humanistically, talking about free will and all that kind of definitions, but we're also influenced by other religious thoughts and other, I mean, movies and all these kind of things bring all these kind of religious traditions in. And one of the Eastern traditions kind of thought processes, which has become pretty popular in America over the last couple of decades, is this idea of energy in the world and, and like yin yang and good and evil. And, and I always say this often, but, but that is not our God. God, I want you to hear me. God is not in an epic battle with evil that he's concerned that he might lose. This is not yin yang where God wins a little bit and evil wins a little bit and God wins a little bit and evil wins a little bit. And, and we're just praying and hoping that God pulls it out in the end. Those make for great movies, but horrible theology. God is not in an epic battle with the devil. You need to know that. You want to know why? <laughs> I try to say this that it doesn't sound too ghetto because it's going to make it feel like I'm disrespecting people. God created the devil. He didn't make him turn into the devil, but he was a supernatural being that was one of the original worship leaders in heaven. And God made him beautiful and he fell in love with his own beauty. And so therefore he walked away from God. But do you think God is looking at the devil's like, oh no, no. Now we can't disrespect the devil. And again, this is what I was trying to say. I don't sound too ghetto because the Bible says that clearly I, we are not to disrespect him because he can overpower us. But what we can tell him is my dad can beat you up. If God is for me, what can you do? Because God's not in this epic battle. And I'm not saying there's not a battle going on. There is. But all I'm saying is if you've got God, you've got the advantage. If he's on your side, it, it, 
It doesn't matter who's on the other side. It doesn't matter who's against you. So, so point number one in this, not that this is an actual point, but, but, but God is your advantage. And what's so interesting to me is this Greek word here for four is the Greek word hyper. Literally, that's the word. You spell it in Greek, H-Y-P-E-R. We just bring it over into English. Now, those, speaking of parenting, those of you who have young boys especially, you know the definition of hyper. Like we even categorize it and diagnose them today, ADD, ADHD. Now, I didn't have that as a kid because it wasn't around. If it was, I probably would have had it. I mean, I could add, but I don't know if I got that stuff. But I like to move and work and be outside. I get that naturally from my father. I just like to be outside. I like to do stuff. And so this word hyper here, I love it that it's this word because literally I can understand that in English to understand that God is not passive when it comes to me. He's hyper. He's active. He's doing stuff. And what he's doing can't be thwarted because he foreknows, predetermines, calls, justifies, glorifies, and the devil or the angels or the demons can do nothing to stop it. He's hyper when it comes to us. He's our advantage. That's only the first 10 of the message. Here's, here's the next part though, because I think a lot of times, a lot of times when I talk about how big God is, people are like, okay, that's good to know, pastor, that our God is big and he's powerful. But does he love me? Because if he's big and he's bad and he's powerful, you talk about your dad, your dad was big and strong and you know, bad to the bone. But if he doesn't love you, then you're just scared of his bigness. Which I think is exactly what Paul says, what he says. Look back at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, a lot of times when it comes to God, not only do we misunderstand what he's doing and how big he is and how powerful he is, we misunderstand whether or not he loves us. And a lot of times we treat God like we did when we were in school where we thought, oh, does she love me? Does she not love me? Does he love me? Does he not love me? I don't know. Check yes or no. Right? Remember this? We pick up the daisy and do the petals. He loves me. He loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. And if it ended on not, by gosh, you were getting another petal until it ended on she loved me. <laughs> right? As if it had supernatural powers to tell you something. But we do that with God. He loves me. He loves me not. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul, remember, this is in context of suffering, trials and tribulations, verses 17 through 27. And so Paul's saying, don't you take the bait of thinking that when you're going through hard times, it's because God doesn't love you. And you're sitting here picking like, he loved me. He loves me not. No, no, no. Paul says, he gave you his son. Now, now, let's talk about this for a second, because God is three in one. And so when I say son, I'm not talking about son like my son is my son, because my son, he's in my image, but he's not me. But Jesus is in the image of the father, but he is God. One God, three persons. How does that all work? I don't know. We'll figure it out when we see him. All right. We see in a mirror dimly right now. But God is one and he's three. And Jesus is the co-eternal image of God, which means throughout all eternity, Jesus, the son, has been imaging the father so that you're seeing the mirror image of God. That's what Colossians tells us. So when, when Paul says, you want to know if he loves you or not, he gave you the best gift he could, himself. And people are like, oh, he gave you his son. That's divine child abuse. No, because he's God. 
Jesus made this decision because he's God. So God gave you the greatest gift he could ever give you, which is him. And you and I, we wonder if he's holding back with the other ones. Let me say it to you like this. If you came up to me after the service, which don't do this, and said, Pastor, can I borrow $100? I'd be like, one, I don't have that cash, right? But if I gave you $100, it was like, yeah, here's $100. And if you came up the next day and said, hey, Pastor, can I have a penny? Do you think I would say, no, that's too much? No. If I just gave you a hundo, what's a penny? Right? I mean, let's think about it. When you're cleaning your house, you vacuum up pennies and you're like, oh, it's just a penny. (laughs) For a nickel, you'll debate it. A quarter, that sucker's turning off, right? Because that could go for the car wash. But a hundred? You're going to rip up the cushions. If God gave you himself in the form of his son, do you think that the other good things that he can give you, he's not going to give you because he doesn't love you? You say, well, okay, then why doesn't he give them? Answer, because he decided not to. Hear me, it's not because God's trying real hard and people are getting in his way. See, again, a lot of us have a theology of like this, again, this epic battle. It's like, oh, God's trying to come through. But he might be in Africa today, so he'll get to you next day. No. Hear me, church. No one's stopping God but God himself. No one is stopping God but God's own decision, just like a parent who withholds. But you and I can never translate that into thinking that if he's not giving us all these other good things, that somehow he doesn't love us because he already gave us the greatest thing. He already gave us the greatest thing. And Paul says, you don't think he's going to, with him, graciously give you all things? Just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he's not good. We'll get more into that in just a second. But I think one of the reasons that we start to think that God is not giving us these things is because we think not only does he not love us, but he's mad at us. Look at the next two verses. It's interesting to me that Paul uses these next. Verse 33 and 34. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God's chosen. Literally, we just brought that over from English. The word elect, where we get our English word election, literally it's spelled E-K-L-E-C-T in Greek. It just means to choose, to make a decision. So who can bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's interesting to me that in this context, speaking about the love of God, Paul immediately goes to two things, accusation and condemnation. Why do you think that is? One of the reasons why I think that is, is because so often in our lives, when we're going through things, we think somehow God is accusing us and condemning us. 
This is what we say to ourselves, right? God's withholding from me because I've done something wrong. I mean, this is what Job's friends came and told him for 30 something chapters. They're like, what'd you do, Job? What'd you do, Job? And he's like, I didn't do nothing. I didn't do nothing. I mean, literally for like chapter three to chapter like 38, that's the summary of it. I did nothing. And Job's friend's like, you did something. And thankfully God shows up and vindicates Job. He's like, y'all are fools. Job spoke correctly. Here's what's hard for us to understand. Sometimes, in fact, I would say more likely all the time, the godlier you are, the more trials and suffering you will face. Look at Jesus. Was there any human being that was as holy as him? Was there any human being that suffered more than him? No. See, this is the hard part for us walking with God. Sometimes we're facing trials and suffering because you did the right thing, not the wrong thing. But when that happens, what does the devil start coming to do? He starts accusing you, doesn't he? He starts condemning you. See, a lot of us misunderstand. We think that the devil's primary role is to tempt us. It's not. His primary role is to condemn us. Why does he tempt us? So that he can condemn us. His primary role is to condemn you guilty before God. That's his primary role. He is the accuser. And so, so often when we're going through these trials, we start accusing ourselves, and therefore we start condemning ourselves. And we start thinking, man, I must have done something to deserve this. What did I do? What did I do? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. So, Women get to change their mind. Preachers get to nuance, all right? Here's, a, here's what I'm saying and not saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't self-reflect and repent if we need to. I'm not saying that we don't do wrong. But there's a big difference in repentance when you're repenting so that God will relent the trial and suffering. When you're repenting because you think God is condemning you. And so you're like, God, I'm sorry that I upset you. Please take this away. That's the wrong kind of motive in repentance. Because here's what you need to understand. If you are in Christ, Romans 8.1 says, now, therefore, there is no condemnation for you. So God is not condemning you by allowing you to go through trials. He's not condemning you. He's not mad at you. This is a product of living in a fallen, sinful world. And yes, sometimes it is because of our choices. Sometimes it's because of other people's choices. But you need to understand something. The worst thing that we can do is sit and wallow in this condemnation and self-accusation. Let me go a step further. In the church, and church, hear me. I want you, this is a sermon within a sermon, but I want you to hear me. How many times when somebody else is going through something, we wrongly assume and start accusing them and start condemning them? And we'll do it in the Christian way, you know, like in the form of a prayer request. But you know how many times as believers, 
when someone is genuinely, authentically struggling, that we step back and say, they deserve that. They got what's coming to them. And we have this sense of entitlement and judgment as if we don't deserve the same things. My friends, hear me. Whenever we speak the language of constant accusation and condemnation, we are speaking the devil's words. And I didn't mince my words when I said that. Now, if somebody needs to repent, they need to repent. But they're not going to do that by us just heaping down accusations and condemnations on them. I was telling a friend of mine a couple months ago, in relationships, this is what you got to do. I said, you know, the best thing that we can do is not assume and accuse, but we can ask. Hey, man, are you okay? I can come near to somebody who's going through it, and maybe they have made some bad decisions, and I can say, man, are you okay? Because I know you and your right mind wouldn't choose this. And I love you enough to come alongside you and help you through this. Ask, don't assume and accuse. Because Paul's saying, who can condemn? It's God who justifies. And he's talking less on the act of justification and more on the actor of justification. He's saying, God is the one who does this. God is the one who justifies. And if God justifies, if God makes right, the word justification means to make righteous. Paul's talked about this all throughout Romans so far, but now he's not talking about that as he's talking about the person. He's saying if God justifies, who can condemn? Who can condemn? And this is where we have to understand, again, think rightly about God and think rightly about what God has done. God doesn't just pardon us for our sins because a lot of times that's what we think. But when you're pardoned, you're still declared guilty, but your sentence is commuted. But, but here is the difference. God didn't just say, yeah, you're guilty, but I'm not gonna punish you. No, he's saying, you're guilty, I'm gonna punish Christ, but now I'm gonna give you Christ's righteousness. And so he doesn't just declare us guilty, but pardon. He declares us innocent as if we've never sinned. We're righteous. And if God has called us righteous in Christ and he doesn't accuse us and he doesn't condemn us, then we have to know that the sufferings and trials that we're going through have nothing to do with that. But don't miss this. He says, Christ who died. I referenced this earlier. Christ died. Our Savior died. And so following Christ is going to lead to death and tribulation. We just need to know that. But I love he doesn't end there. He doesn't end there. He says, more than that. See, that's a phrase that doesn't get much play either. More than that. I think that's going to be my Easter message this week, this, this next year. More than that. He didn't just die. Religious people die all the time. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God right now, who indeed is interceding for us right now. See, Christ didn't just die for you. Christ is living for you. And if he's living for you, that is a great advantage, don't you think? For 
And you know, in golf, and I don't play golf much because I'm not that good at it, I just gotta be honest with you. I'll go for the fellowship. I don't go for the, I'm about eight holes in and I'm done, right? But I know in golf, and I've learned this a lot, when you hit a, a golf ball and it's veering off and you're gonna hit somebody, you go, four. I don't really understand it, but the whole point is like, hey, there's a golf ball flying for your head. So take cover, <laughs> F-O-R-E, four. It's a warning. How about in Christian circles, we don't just warn, but we start screaming another word to our Christian brothers and sisters when they are struggling. For, F-O-R. For God is for you. This is not the end. God is with you. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Can anything separate you? I mean, I'm getting, let's go with the next verse, verse 35. I'm gonna get real excited up in here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Another question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is an exhaustive list, but he covers most of it. For, if he's for you, who can separate you? Can any of these things? No, and the word separate, don't miss this, means to isolate or cause to feel at a distance. How often have you felt separated from God because of what you're going through? But nothing can make you distant. Look at the next two verses. How do we know that? Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no. This is the answer to verse 35. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. A couple of things to highlight here. When you're going through tribulations and trials and distress and you feel ashamed and condemned and accused and you don't understand what God is doing, you better know this phrase. It is written. You better know some words that are written down to encourage you or else you will feel separated from God. It is written. In Matthew 4, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, he was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, didn't eat for 40 days. The devil shows up to tempt him three different times. What does Jesus say back to him? It is what? Written. Now here's the trippy part. Jesus wrote it. Like, this is why I love Jesus. Jesus doesn't say to, to, to the devil, fool, I wrote this. What did I say? No, he says it is written. Why does he do that? Because as a human being in that moment, he's submitting to the power of the word of God in his life. But you better know, he knew it. He had his word in his heart so that he might not sin against God. My friends, you better hear me today. If you don't hear anything else, you better hear this. When you're going through trials and tribulations, you better have some verses that are written that you can quote, that you can know, that you can lean on. And in verse 35 or verse 36 is a quote from Psalm 44, 22. And you should go read Psalm 44. It's a great Psalm, but you wanna know what the whole Psalm is about? The whole Psalm, the Psalmist is saying, we heard about you and all these great things you did for our ancestors, but where are you right now? You've abandoned us, where are you? And he says, as for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's one thing I know, ain't none of y'all got that on a coffee mug. None of y'all. 
What's your favorite verse? It's Psalm 44, 22. <laughs> Being killed all day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Mm, I just love that one. I just love it. No, you ain't got that one. You want to know why? Because you don't want to know that one. You don't want to memorize that one. You want 37, but you better know 36. My friends, listen to me. You better know that suffering is written. It is written that we will suffer and we will feel like sheep that are getting slaughtered. But are we separated from the love of God? No. In all these things, what things? All those things. We are more than conquerors. I love this phrase. More than conquerors. Let me ask you a question. Conquering is one thing. Like football season starting up and you're hoping that your team conquers every other team, right? And when your team conquers the other team, by definition, you win. You win the game. That's what this word means. It means victory. But it's an interesting word because it means more than that. Because it's two Greek words put together. <laughs> it's almost like there's a God. Let me tell you these two words. Hyper. Nikael. Now the second word there, you already knew. You just didn't know that you knew it. It's the Greek word, Nike. Did you know that Nike, the brand, swoosh and all, comes from a Greek word? Now they reference a Greek goddess with that name that symbolized the god of victory. And when you are victorious, you are Nike, you win. But Paul says we are hyper Nike. We are more than winners. You want to know how that, what that means? See, when your team beats the other team, you win, but the other team goes home and you go home and you play the next team the next week and you hope to win. That's Nike, that's conquering, that's winning. But more than conquering is when you beat them and then you make them your slave. Now, several of you be like, I would, there's plenty of teams I would love to do that to. I'd love to beat them and then make them serve me. Beat them and then get my Diet Coke. Right? That's the idea. Here's what God is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. In Christ, you don't just win the victory over tribulations. You subjugate them to yourself. You make them your slave. See, friends, here's what you need to know. Right now, even though we're going through trials and tribulations, you are not enslaved to them. They are enslaved to you. They are working for you. And you say, how in the world are they working for me? I don't have time to get into this, but this is a late addition to the sermon. It's not on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. And it just so happens to be that this was the verses this morning in my devotional. Don't tell me there's not a God. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, Paul says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For, listen to this, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is he saying there? He's saying these present afflictions right now are preparing for you, in you, a weight of glory. So these trials and tribulations, you are not chained to them. They are chained to you. And God is beating them from the inside out by making them make you into the image of Christ to where one day you will look and see that all this pain that you went to doesn't compare to the weight of the glory he's made in you. You see what I'm saying? So, so right now, when we face trials and tribulations, we could ask God to take them away, and that's okay. But we gotta get to the place where we understand that if he doesn't, he's still good, he's still working, and he is using those very things that we have asked him to take to prepare in us something Again, told you last two weeks ago, synergistically, that's going to produce something that we couldn't have gotten without them. So you're not stuck with them. They are stuck with you. And you can wake up every day and say, I don't like this, but I own you. You don't own me. I'm not a victim to you. I'm a victor. I'm more than a victor. I am hyper Nike. Because my God, don't miss this. It's the same word for hyper. My God is hyper. My God is for me. And if my God is for me, who can be against me? You're gonna come at me with some death and some tribulations, some talk, some condemnation. God's gonna turn all that for my good. Bring it on. God's gonna take all of that and produce a weight of glory in me that lasts for all eternity. So not only does God love you, but God is making you into the image of his son and he is using the things of this world to do it. How else could Joseph stand before his brothers in Genesis 50 and say these words? One of my favorite verses in the Bible. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph had to tell himself that when he was in the prison. Because when he got to the palace, he wouldn't have appreciated the palace if it didn't come out of the prison. And yes, we will suffer, and yes, we will die. Oh. But that's just preparation for the palace of eternity with God. Because death ain't got the final word. Last two verses and we're done. For I am sure, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, I could stop rapping, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Will not be able, can't do it. 
Nothing in all creation. Listen, friends, you got to understand something. There are two categories, creator and creation. And the devil, angels, demons, humans, earth, all in the created category, God stands alone. And if that God is for me, ain't nothing in this creation category going to stop what he's doing in me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us in this way, with this kind of love. God, I pray that these doctrines that have caused confusion for people, we would grow to love because they're the very foundation of our faith. There's no way we can obey the commandment of James chapter one that says count it as joy when you're going through these things if we don't believe that these things are going to produce something and that you're in control of all that. And so God, thank you for loving us first, for determining our destination to look like Jesus, then calling us and justifying us and glorifying us. Because God, we need to be reminded that this world is not all there is. There are unseen things. And what we see is transient. This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. So help us to see through the trials and be reminded of the fact that they're working for us. We're not enslaved to them. They don't own our joy. You do. But at the same time, God, we want to be honest. Just like Jesus, when he was on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's going to be times where we feel like you've forsaken us. But God, right now, would you give us some it is written moments? Would you give us some words that are written to store in our heart? Because you said in Isaiah, the grass may wither and the stars will fade, but your word will stand forever. But God, we also know that this only applies to those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So there may be some listening or here today that aren't in Christ. And God, we pray right now that you would save them. You would open their eyes so they can respond in faith and they can be in Christ through faith by grace. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. But if you're not in Christ, you haven't trusted Christ and been saved. But today in the preaching of God's word, your eyes have been opened and you see and you want to respond maybe for the first time in your life in faith and be saved. And I'm gonna give you a chance to do that, to confess and repent and receive forgiveness. So right there where you are, if you wanna trust Christ, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me. Not out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me. 
that you sent your son in my place for my sin to take my punishment. I confess my sins and I receive your grace and I ask you to save me, forgive me. I'm trusting in Christ alone. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed that with me for the first time, would you, would you simply just lift your hand up so we can see that and know that? Thank you. We got men and women gonna walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put your hand down. But then those of us who have trusted Christ, hope you've been encouraged today by this word of God. And you leave today with a word for if you're in Christ, God is for you. You've got the greatest advantage. And God is hyperly working. And you may not see it right now. It's still in the unseen realm, but he's working. And nothing or no one can stop it or separate you from him. So I hope you're encouraged today to know if God's for you, nobody can be against you. Father, would you pound this truth into our hearts? Because we need to be reminded in this world that is full of evil, that nothing is outside of your hands. And one day we'll be able to stand like Joseph did and like Jesus did and say, they meant it for evil but you used it for good. And it'll be a glory so great that we'll look back on these tribulations and we'll call them light and momentary. That's our hope in Jesus' name, amen.